Back in 2008, massively excess supply of housing for the population that we had at that present time. Today, complete opposite challenge on our hands. Like we have a massive shortage. As far as residential is concerned, I don't think it's going to be the same type of crash. Again, it's just, it's very different. Thank you for joining us again today and every day. I am grateful for your time, your attention. I pray that you are learning a lot from the Real Estate Syndication Show. We are definitely putting so much time and energy into finding the best guests we can find and creating the best content for you so you can become a better investor and operator. Please like and subscribe, whether it's YouTube, iTunes, wherever you listen. You can always reach out to us at info at lifebridgecapital.com. We would love to hear your comments, even your critical feedback. So would you please like and subscribe to the show? We'll be forever grateful. Well, today I'm going to continue my conversation with Kevin Bupp. He is the founder and CEO of Sunrise Capital Investors, which invests in mobile home parks, parking lots, apartments, offices, and single-family homes across the U.S. He has 16 years of experience educating investors to locate, acquire, and create higher-than-average returns from a widely misunderstood mobile home park investing niche. He shares his expertise through the Mobile Home Academy and also as a host of the Real Estate Investing for Cashflow podcast, which has become one of the hottest real estate podcasts on iTunes. Uh, he has a new book coming out and you can find that on Amazon, of course, but you can find it for free. He said at kevinbutt.com forward slash free book. You're going to learn a lot from Kevin today. I'd love to, you know, use our last few minutes too, just to get your thoughts on, you know, what's happening now. You know, you went through that recession then, obviously very tough time. You know, everything that's happening right now in our economy, the treasury interest rates going up. How do you see all that? What are you focusing on from what you learned? You know, are you doing things differently now? What, what does that look like? Even back then, I felt like I was a fairly conservative investor. That period of time turned me into an even more conservative investor. In fact, it probably so much that over the last, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten years of a run-up, I probably have actually pass on opportunity that would have turned out quite well, just from too much of a conservative approach of, I guess, having scars from going through that. I don't want to rebuild it again. I don't want to go through that again. And I'm only 43. So I guess I have time, but I just rather not. I'd rather just be conservative and buy what I know makes sense. And will absolutely not necessarily be a home run. You don't, you can't hit home runs every time, but I want to be hitting, I want to be hitting doubles, doubles and triples. And I'm okay waiting to buy the right assets. And so I think nothing's necessarily changed with our business today. I would say that we're buying less only because again, now I'm looking at, the shifts in the, in the market and the rates that, you know, if you type a property today, there's a really good chance by the time your DD runs out and you have to actually let your money go hard if, if you haven't done it already. I know a lot of the multifamily deals that you guys are having to put money hard up front, but let's assume that just like you put a $500,000 up on a big deal that's refundable. You got 30 days DD. There's a really good chance at some point shortly thereafter, depending on the next Fed meeting is that that rate's going to change again. And so it, it's a, such a moving target right now. I'm not sure exactly what advice to give today as far as how to buy the right asset right now until we can see a little sense of stability of like, okay, well, there's not going to be another 75 basis points hit in the next month. And then the following month after that, where are we really going to end up? And so I will say that the things that we have under contract right now, like we have an asset under contract that more than likely is probably going to die now. Like the rate literally has changed, at least on that deal, about 1.25% and it's a $17 million deal. I mean, that, that changes the economics entirely unless we can get a retrade. And we're not in the business of retrading, but inevitably, you know, the target moved and it moved so drastically drastically that the deal is no longer what the deal was when we signed it up. And so I would say stick to the basic fundamentals. Don't lie to yourself. Don't buy a deal just to say that you buy a deal. I see so much support on Facebook, not necessarily for full cycles that people that took the deals full cycle, but there's so much like, oh, congratulations, great job. When someone just either gets a deal under contract or when they just close it, that's just the start. Maybe you made some money on fees, 
But gosh, like the hard work is just beginning. And not knowing, you know, what this future path of volatility and uncertainty looks like, there's a good chance that that GP might work for the next three or four years and actually not make anything on that deal. They literally might work for free for the next three or four years. So I would just say, you know, stick to the fundamentals, make sure that you are absolutely positive. The deal pencils today on in-place NOI. First and foremost, make sure that it pencils today in in-place NOI. If you got to get into a deal today with a bridge loan and you're going to have negative cash flow for the first two years while you actually start executing that value add plan, I would second guess it. Again, that's just my opinion. I'm overly conservative. Maybe maybe you get lucky and you make it work because rents continue at double digit increases. That might be the case, but there's a lot of what ifs in that scenario. And so that's buying what makes sense today with in-place NOI. I think the best advice that I can give. Don't lie to yourself. Don't push the model to where you know, you're expecting five, seven, or maybe double digit rent increases because that's happened for the past two years. Be uber conservative, stress tested. And then if your plan is a three to five year exit, probably not put a four and a half cap in there. You know, I, I don't know what to tell you to put it in there, but stress it to the cliff, you know, stress it and find out where it falls off the cliff. And if you think there's a realm of possibility in the next three to four years that we might be still not just an interest rate environment, but cap rate environment, we might be there, then second guess it. Know that there's another deal around the corner. You know, there's always another opportunity. I, I think people get so caught up in the anxiety of, if I don't buy this one, this is the best deal ever. And I don't buy this one, there won't be another one. And I'm going to work all this time and I pass on this deal. And then there might not be another one around the corner. Just know there's always another deal that will come your way. Just be patient and the right deal will absolutely come along. And you'll, most of the time you'll know when it, your gut will tell you whether or not you should be doing that deal. My gut's never lied to me. I don't know about you, Whitney, but uh, every time I get a little bit of a feeling and I go against what that feeling is, typically it bites me in the rear. Yeah, it's a good alert measure anyway, right? Uh, so, but you mentioned, or even being able, willing to walk away from a deal, you said, you know, it changed what 1.25%. Uh, and it, I think it's what you said, and, and it killed the deal. Uh, so you all will walk away from this project now. Yeah, it didn't kill it. Yeah, you know, we're, we've got a couple more weeks. We've got a few reports we're waiting on, uh, engineering reports and such. And, you know, so that when we go back to actually have that conversation, we can kind of lump everything together. There's some CapEx items that are outstanding that I think are going to come back on the engineer report. And so, but I'm, I'm already mentally prepared. Like I, I haven't, I, like I kind of know how the family is that owns the property. They're just an old generational family. And um, it's interesting. They own literally billions of dollars of assets and they literally, the correlation between what's happening with rates to values of property, like it just, it hasn't registered in their brains. So I don't think their expectations are any different than what they were three months ago. And they haven't adjusted accordingly. And so I'm not thinking it's going to go in a very positive light. You know, I hope it does. I like to be optimistic about it because I think we are the best buyer. And I don't think there's anyone standing behind us waiting in line line to basically buy something with a now a razor thin margin. Uh, it's a triple net deal. So there's a literally it's a the value that we cannot do anything different for five years. And so, I mean, you're basically you're buying into a, a spread. That's it. There's nothing you can do to change that for five years to come. And so I don't know if there's anyone waiting in line to uh, to take that kind of risk. Yeah, that's, that's helpful. And But I, I wanted to ask you one more thing on this. Uh, you mentioned like 2008 was a very different type of recession than now. Let's speak to that a little bit. I, a lot of people are confused. I think, you know, they didn't go through what you did then they didn't experience that and have the understanding of what really happened even in 2008. So could you just speak to what you mean by you know different types of recession? There's a lot of, lot of different factors, but let's just speak to housing, right? Like back then we had an excess supply of housing in a number of markets. And I spoke to some of the markets they hit the hardest, California, Phoenix, Arizona, Las Vegas, and then pretty much the entire state of Florida. Uh, we had an excess supply of housing. 
like we were literally building rooftops for populations that were not there yet. In addition to that, a lot of the economies in, in those places weren't as diverse as what they might be today. More specifically, a lot of the major markets in Florida, Tampa, Orlando, Miami, and Jacksonville, they're much more economically diverse as far as employer bases than what they were back then. The same goes with Phoenix. I mean, Phoenix is an incredibly dynamic economy, night and day different than what it was you know, pre-2008. And so that's a big understanding is that you know, today we literally have a shortage of roughly 4 million homes that we need right now whether it be apartments or homes, we need 4 million residential units right now. We had such a lull in building coming out of the Great Recession. We weren't building. Population was still growing. You know, households were still forming. And then we had this you know, slowdown with the pandemic uh, to where, you know, there was a little bit of a blip on the radar. And then people wanted to start building again. But then the you know supply chain, you know, completely broke down. And it's been really challenging for us to keep up with even the current demand, let alone make up for you know the demand that we built up over the last decade or so. And so back in 2008, massively excess supply of housing for the population that we had at that present time. Today, complete opposite challenge on our hands that we have a massive shortage. As far as residential is concerned, I don't think it's going to be the same type of crash. Again, it's just, it's very different. We don't have the teaser loans that were in place back then. People have a lot of equity in their homes. A lot of people locked in an incredibly, I mean, historically low interest rates. I mean, 3% versus back then it was, you know, if you got a six and a half percent mortgage, you were doing great. And a lot of those mortgages had adjustable dates that came into play as well. And in addition to that, you know, for me personally, one of the big differences, so I'm going to speak to Florida. That's where, you know, we had the majority of our portfolio back in 2008. Not only was there an excess supply of homes being built, but what happened is as soon as the ish hit the fan, basically what occurred was a lot of these builders that had, you know, hundreds and hundreds of rooftops, they started renting them out. They started doing whatever they could to pay their monthly nut. Unfortunately, not only was the population not coming, but people, a lot of the jobs related to construction, people started moving away. I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase halfbacks, but basically people were moving out of Florida, going halfway back to the Northeast, ending up in Tennessee or Kentucky or the Carolinas, because there was still some opportunity there where Florida was basically in the toilet. We had a major occupancy issue in our portfolio back then where we were basically fighting against brand new homes that were being rented and uh, they were offering concessions. We had offer concessions. When people say that rents ever go down, I'm not going to say that's going to happen this time around. I'm just going to say that it has happened historically. Our rents went down for a period of time. In addition to that, we had to offer a lot of concessions. So we had a massive occupancy issue. And then ultimately what that spun out was, you know, we had negative cash flow at some point in time and we had loans that were coming due and it just became a, a nasty mess that I don't think that most folks in real estate today are in that same position. You know, again, there's a line, a waiting line of, of applicants waiting to get into homes in pretty much every market across the country. And so I don't think that we'll go through the same type of challenges. And again, we don't have loans that are basically where, you know, waitresses end up buying five homes on, you know, no doc type uh, loan statements and things of that nature. We're not going to have that kind of silliness, but I do think that we're going to have a lot of challenges as far as I think unemployment, we'll probably see a, a spike in unemployment. We've already seen a lot of the tech companies are having challenges right now. They're making, you know, off by the thousands. Companies will struggle. Companies will make layoffs. And inevitably, I think that will trickle down into real estate in one form or fashion or another. But I do think that people that have those low interest rates locked in, I'll just speak the typical single family homeowner. I think that people want to hold on to that low rate mortgage. And so even if they lose their job, I think a couple of things will happen. Number one, they'll fight tooth and nail to hold on to that valuable asset, which is not necessarily the house, but it's the actual loan on you know, the underlying loan of that house. But now with technology, you know, the Airbnbs of the world, and you know, there's a bunch of other apps where you can like rent rooms in your house and things of that nature. That didn't exist back then. And so I think that people will get fairly resourceful and they'll start renting out rooms in their house, uh, you know, rent out their garage to someone who wants to park the car. They'll do things, whatever they can to make that 
that monthly nut. And I don't think that that those options weren't necessarily available back during the, you know, or prior to the, uh, the, the Great Recession in 2008. And so I do think that we're going to be in for some bumpy roads. Again, I think just sticking to the underlying, the basic fundamentals, buy things that only cash flow today. Don't be speculative in nature. You know, stress test your underwriting model you know, to the nth degree. You know, find out where that cliff is. And then don't just take your own perspective. Get outsider's perspective as well. Talk to others that have been there and done that. Talk to others in the marketplace and try to get their temperature of what they anticipate is going to happen. And then you know, make a collective, educated decision at that point in time. And know that inevitably there will be opportunity around the corner. Like it, this isn't going to be, hey, if I don't buy now, we'll never be able to buy again. And promise you opportunity will come and just be prepared for it. And last I think the last thing I want to mention that one piece of advice that was given to me prior to 2008, which I I didn't take to, uh, but I have taken to since then. I wish I would have made the decision back then is that you never lose by taking some chips off the table. I know that real estate's a phenomenal hedge to inflation. It is like, there's really not one much better than real estate, but also a lot of folks have, they have a ridiculous amount of equity right now in some of their properties. And I know you might not have another place to put it right away. Your dollar might get inflated away a little bit, but it truly never hurts to have a bucket of cash sitting on the sidelines. You never lose, really lose in the grand scheme of things. You just truly don't lose by having, by taking some of your chips off the table. So I'll leave it with that. And that's one thing that we've done over the last 10 years, probably a little differently. We definitely are long-term holders, but we have strategically sold a number of assets and it's positioned us with a really, really strong balance sheet, a personal balance sheet to where I'll be able to weather any storm that comes my way. And I'll also be prepared for any opportunity that could ultimately come out of this uh, challenging time ahead. Yeah, I love that. You'll be ready to weather any storm, but also be ready for the opportunity as well. Yeah, stress tested to death. And no, just some great advice. I just appreciate from your experience, Kevin, just being real about what's happening, uh, you know, about the cash, uh, having cash on hand as well. Uh, I've heard somebody say the other day, no, uh, no cash, you crash. You know, so uh, you, you can't be so focused on the inflation that you're worried about, you know, losing the value of the dollar that you don't have a reserve, right? Same thing on a property level too, you know, but on a property level, like make sure that you, even if it means that you have to, you know, like during the pandemic, we stopped distributions for a, a period of time until we realized that people were going to pay their rent, right? Like, but we, you know, we, we, we stopped distributions and we stockpiled cash for, I think, I think it was about four months before we resumed, you know, distributions. And, you know, if, if you don't have, you know, six months of operating capital or whatever that means to your particular property level business, start thinking about that, getting your financial house in order and and making it bulletproof and being able to withstand. Maybe it takes you a little bit longer to turn a unit. I know you got people waiting in line to get into one of your rentals, but you know, the labor shortage is real as well. Like finding the right people, you get someone that trash your unit, you know, and it takes you actually three months to turn that unit when it should have taken you maybe three weeks in a normal situation, but you can't get the right talent in there to get it turned and get it ready again. Just make sure you got that cash at hand to actually pay the debt service and actually float you until you get another paying renter in there. And so again, just be financially capable and ready to act in the event that you find yourself in a challenging situation. All right, Kevin, I, I'm going to uh, move to just a few final questions, very quick questions. And I and, uh, just want to get your thoughts on a few final things uh, before we go. Uh, what's your best source for meeting new investors right now? Going to events, your live events are back again. You know, the Zoom thing was, while it was great, definitely enjoy meeting in person. So, you know, I attend a number of different masterminds, different boot camps and things of that nature on an annual basis. So that by far is the best way of meeting new investors and new colleagues in the space. What are the most important metrics that you track? And that could be personally or professionally. That's a great question. So today, our break-even, and you'll throw out our entire portfolio, what that break-even is as far as occupancy of what each, on a property level, what each property needs to be at as far as economic occupancy to actually be at a break-even as far as expenses and debt service. What are some habits that you are disciplined about that have produced the highest return for you? Steady exercise. I get 
get up at least three to four days a week at four o'clock in the morning, which I am not a morning person at all. And I still struggle to get up at 4 a.m. three to four days a week. And I take very, very long bike rides. It's kind of one of my things and allows me to listen to audiobooks and get healthy while I'm getting educated and uh, just puts me in the right frame of mind, you know, for the entirety of the week. It's been a habit of mine now for about 15 years. Nice. So three or four mornings a week. It's not like every day you're getting at 4 a.m. I do other workouts like on those off days, but um, but like the grind workouts, the ones that, uh, yeah, 4 a.m. And typically I ride about 40 to 50 miles on each one of those rides. And so I put in a few hundred miles a week, but it, it's one of those sports where, you know, riding a bike, you know, you can actually, you can actually do something. You can listen while you're doing that. And, um, and so I, I get a lot of audio books and a lot of podcasts in, whereas it's challenging to do that when you're sitting in front of a computer all day long or you're on the phone and think, you know, if you're not driving a lot for your occupation, it's really hard to, to get those hours in of uh, good quality content. What's the number one thing that's contributed to your success? My family my wife and my family. How do you like to give back? One of the big things that I've done, and it gets, this also spun out of the uh, the 08 recession, I formed what is called the 72 Hours of Key West Bike Ride. Again, 2008 left me with no money. And a good friend of mine, Rod Cleef, uh, I've uh, known Rod for many years, about 20 years now. And he's got an organization called the Tiny Hands Foundation where they, they have a lot of different initiatives uh, here in Florida where they give back food baskets during the holidays, teddy bears to the local police departments and, and a number of other initiatives. And Rod used to fund that endeavor entirely out of his own pocket. Well, he lost a lot of money during the Great Recession as well. And 2008 to 2009, we went from feeding like 3,000 people during the Christmas season to like 300. And so I put together this bike ride. that I didn't have money, but I had legs and I had my health. Basically vowed to donate all the proceeds from this ride uh, to the Tiny Hands Foundation. So that we're going on our 12th year. We, we missed a year due to a hurricane and another year during the pandemic, but we're going on our 12th physical year of doing the actual event. And we ultimately raised anywhere from 50 to $70,000 on annual annual basis for his foundation. There's one other charity as well. And so it's, it's a beautiful thing, basically taking my love for cycling and tying it into my love for giving back and helping others. Love that. I appreciate you sharing that. That's, that's significant. I mean, 50 to 75 grand that and done it 12 years. Appreciate you giving back in that way. Kevin, grateful for your time flexibility today as well. I know we went very long. You just shared some amazing content. I mean, even from the mentor and that relationship and what that did for you, but even through the, the hard times of the recession and, you know, you and your, your wife, during that time and saying, sticking together during those hard times and just being real with her, what was coming, you know, even before you were married, uh, that was wise and really caring for her, I think as well. Uh, but even, uh, you know, how you went from mobile home parks to parking and helping us walk through that, even that deal, that $34 million deal, I think that's very helpful for many of us who have not thought about the parking lot that may be next to where we walk to every day downtown, or, you know, we've not even considered that. Uh, but then even the more depth in the recession of 2008 versus potentially what we're experiencing now uh, and your thoughts around that. Very grateful. Uh, how can the listeners get in touch with you? And also, I, I know you, you've you written another book. Tell them how they can get their hands on that book as well. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Whitney. Yeah, if you can see it on my shelf back here, if you're watching the video, it's called The Cash Flow Investor, you know, how to create legacy wealth through commercial real estate investing. I just launched the book about a month and a half ago. You can buy it on Amazon for $20 or you can just go to my website and I've got a free copy up there for a period of time. Let's go to kevinbupp.com forward slash free book and grab a copy of that. And so you can also contact me through my website, kevinbup.com. Just go to the contact me page. And that's where I host my podcast as well. And if you want to learn about what we've got going on as far as in the investing world through our company, Sunrise Capital Investors, you can go over to investwithsunrise.com. Thank you for being a loyal listener of the Real Estate Syndication Show. Please subscribe and like the show. Share it with your friends so we can help them as well. Don't forget, go to lifebridgecapital.com where you can sign up and start investing in real estate today. Have a blessed day.